We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by former Taiwan This Week host, Keith Menconi. Hello. And regular commentator, Ross Feingold. Good evening. Now, tonight we'll be discussing yet more concessions to work week laws, Taoists who are incensed by reports of an incense ban, debate over whether train passengers should undergo security checks, and bananas, simply because loads of people apparently want them. But we'll begin with Taiwan and the United States holding their first trade and investment talk since Donald Trump moved into the White House this week. The talks took place over three days here in Taipei and were held under the Trade and Investment Framework Agreement, which is a bilateral mechanism for talks between Taiwan and the United States. Now, Taiwan's delegation was headed by Bureau of Foreign Trade Director Yang Jianni, and Washington's delegation was comprised of representatives from the Office of the United States Trade Representative, the Department of Commerce, and the Department of Agriculture. Now, the talks covered a wide range of topics, and these included intellectual property rights protection, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, investment and technical barriers to trade, and of course, the rather thorny issue of pork and Ractopamine. And of course, there sits the problem, Ross. Pork and leanless enhancers, which some have argued is rather a large stumbling block to the government's hopes to sign a free trade agreement with Washington. Among other problems and stumbling blocks. But uh, I think you've hit on a lot of the key challenges with what transpired over the last few days. It's not just pork. There are other issues in the bilateral trade relationship. And the fact that this is a mechanism for talks, to use the words that that you had used. And this goes on uh, once or twice a year. It gets a big press uh, to do. Uh, Both sides say how they're working to resolve these issues. But a lot of the issues you've identified actually have been long-running issues. This is the same conversation we would have had following the talks two years ago, five years ago, etc. So there's room for progress, obviously. And uh, if Taiwan could relax some of these restrictions that the U.S. believes are barriers to trade and and, and the export of U.S. products, it will certainly be good for the bilateral relationship. Whether it would actually lead to an FDA, I think, is extremely speculative at this point. One issue, putting aside the specific barriers to trade, but one issue that we should keep our eyes on is the fact that the Trump administration has singled out trade surpluses in countries that it trades with that uh, have a trade surplus with the United States as something that they want to address. They've been in talks with China over the last couple of months because obviously China has the largest trade surplus uh, with the U.S., but they have also uh, explicitly named Taiwan. Taiwan has about uh, a $9 billion trade surplus with the United States. Uh, It's actually shrunk a little bit over the last 15 years, but it's still fairly substantial. And, you know, whether or not you think trade surpluses actually matter, a lot of economists will tell you that that's not really a useful metric to look at, but... The Trump administration believes it does, and they believe that it is a sign that a country is, you know, has an unfair deal with the United States and is taking advantage of uh, the trade situation with the United States. And so if the United States is focusing on that, it could focus on the trade surplus with Taiwan, and, and that would be kind of bad news. And we saw already saw a little bit of evidence that the U.S. is going to make some moves on this front. 
Uh, recently, the U.S. ruled that the Taiwan is dumping rebar, steel rebar. They believe that uh, you know that's basically uh, what's considered an unfair trade practice of uh, undercutting the price of rebar, selling it at, at a lower price. Uh, and the U.S. has slapped tariffs on the rebar uh, sellers in Taiwan because of that. So. Uh, you know, this is an issue that they said that they were going to look at in these talks, and if it goes much further, this could be uh, a real problem for Taiwan. Well, uh, steel is is one of the long running um, problems in the bilateral relationship. So the the these issues come up every few years when whether it's a Democrat, Republican, whichever president has been in office recently, uh, not only Taiwanese steel exporters to the U.S., but Korean and Chinese are also frequent targets. Uh, but but again, steel is just one among a number of concerns that the U.S. has. And um, ultimately, the decision can be made on the Taiwan side to relax some of these technical restrictions to trade or the uh, concerns that Taiwan has over the ractopamine, etc. So very much, and this isn't new, it's not new to the Trump administration or to the team of negotiators that came uh, this week for the the meetings. the, the issues have been long-running issues that can be resolved by the Taiwan side. Uh, and to be fair, uh, and the Taiwan side knows this, the, the Taiwanese companies enjoy very uh, unlimited access to U.S. markets, as do other countries' exporters, which is something that makes President Trump very angry. Uh, so, uh, again, the, the ability to address this uh, is here in Taiwan if they have the political will to do so. But obviously, some of these issues are obviously easier to sort out than others. Obviously, we'll talk about intellectual property rights protection. A pretty easy thing for the government to sort out. There's no major opposition to that here. But when we get to the pork issue with ractopamine, of course, the island's pig farmers, or swine farmers, as they like to be called, they really don't want U.S. pork in Taiwan. Yeah, and, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying this is something that the Thai administration should address. I think if they were going to address it, we probably would have already seen something. I mean, not just given how embattled the Thai administration is currently on so many different policy fronts from, you know, the nuclear issue to the work week issue to the pension issue. You know, they've already spent so much of their political capital on, on other things. If they really wanted to make a stand to kind of bend this one industry you know, they, they they probably should have done it earlier. Now I don't see a lot of room for that. Well, uh, pork alone, though, is not going to change uh, the trade deficit substantially. I mean, it'll, it'll be... And it will have an impact, and pork exporting states are important to uh, the coalition that... Uh, put President Trump into office from the Electoral College perspective. So the United States will certainly welcome uh, changes to the rules that would allow U.S. pork to enter. However, we should be very careful. It is not the one and only issue. And those other issues, uh, although, you, Gavin, you, you, you mentioned that things like intellectual property rights, protection, everybody could be on board with that here in Taiwan. But whatever concerns the U.S. has on that issue or the other issues still take time to work out, right? It would take uh, better laws, regulations need to be rewritten, enforcement has to actually take place. Uh, so there, there needs to be will to resolve a lot of these issues, or what's going to happen is the next time these talks occur, we're going to be having the same exact conversation and talking about the same unresolved issues with the same trade deficit. Although, as Keith pointed out, there might at that point be additional measures taken by the U.S. under U.S. trade law, such as uh, anti-dumping duties against the rebar steel. Right, and if you had to give a time frame for a Taiwan-US FTA, could you give one? Never. 
Let's be a bit more optimistic <laughs> than that, shall we? Well, uh, you know, first of all, um, there's limited bandwidth, and I don't say this by way of criticism, but there's limited bandwidth in the U.S. government to negotiate FTAs. You can only negotiate a limited number at the same time, and there's some trading partners in the United States that probably have a higher priority, partially for political reasons, but, but mostly just for economic and trade reasons, uh, markets that are most important to U.S. exporters. So, yes, the U.S. is a trade deficit with Taiwan. Yes, there are some technical barriers, regulatory barriers to for U.S. exports to enter Taiwan. However, there, there are still other uh, areas where U.S. companies can be, U.S. products can be very competitive in the Taiwan market. So it's not all bad in the trade relationship. You know, let's not um, give the listeners a mis- misconception about that. Uh, however, there are other potential FTA negotiations where the market access opportunity that will come out from the successful negotiation of an FTA would be so much greater for U.S. companies, so much larger by dollar value products, uh, number of jobs that would be created in the United States if an FTA was negotiated with that trading partner. Um, those are going to take priority over uh, negotiation with FTA. It's not uh, with Taiwan. That's not meant to be a criticism of Taiwan or meant in any way to say that the bilateral relationship is not important to the United States. Uh, however, there are other FTAs that are going to be a higher priority, whether it's in the, the the next three years, three and a half years of the Trump administration, a second term if President Trump wins a second term or whoever becomes president in 2024. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, especially with uh, Trump as president. I mean, we we, we do see that he does uh, seem to prefer these bilateral trade talks. So maybe something there. But just in general, there does seem to be a lot of antipathy towards trade in the current U.S. climate. And, you know, if he just backed out of the TPP and if if he's also identifying Taiwan as, as well as a number of other Asian countries as you know, calling them out for having a trade surplus with the U.S., just politically, it doesn't seem like there is a lot of appetite to move forward uh, on trade issues to Taiwan's benefit. And there we shall leave the world of international trade and investment and move on to domestic work laws and moves by the government to ease problems caused by the Workweek laws it introduced it only last December. Now, the Ministry of Labour said it plans to allow more industries to adopt flexible working hours and is seeking to allow those who work in the agricultural, forestry, fishing and livestock sectors to work now for a maximum of 24 consecutive days. Now, the government has already had to introduce more flexible working hour systems for people employed in both the banking and hospitality sectors. So, is the Tsai administration's hard-won, barely understood and much ridiculed new workweek policy unravelling at the seams? Or, Keith, was it simply doomed from the get-go? I think the right way to think of this is that the government has sort of a spectrum of flexibility that they can work with. They can either have very restrictive regulations that force every single company in Taiwan to adhere to exactly the same set of rules, or they can be a little bit more flexible. Now, you know, obviously we're replacing a system that was in place, I think about a year and a half ago, where it was you had you could only make workers work for 84 hours every two weeks. Now we're doing 40 hours every one week. So we've gotten a little bit tighter. And as we've gotten tighter, a lot of these companies are saying this doesn't work for us. You know, when there's holidays, when something unforeseen happens, we need some flexibility to adjust the hours and make it work for the, the resources that we have. And, you know, we do see a lot of cases where people are, are basically lying about their hours because even the workers feel like this is uh, too rigid, uh, 
I saw an example of you know one academic that says sometimes I need to work 12 hours, sometimes I need to work four hours, you know, and and I, this there's no way to make this workable without just lying about my hours and uh, sucking it up myself. So you know, obviously there is a need for flexibility on, on the one hand, but on the other hand, there is a lot of distrust for the managers in Taiwan. There's just a lot of cases where the the way that companies think that the best way to make profit is to just squeeze the the labor as much as possible and cut costs and cut costs and get as much out of the workers as uh, the laws will allow. And so a lot of unions are coming out, a lot of activists are coming out and saying, you know, we don't trust these companies enough to give them more flexibility. Uh, we think that a 40-hour work week is reasonable, and if that, you know, makes the company need to spend more on labor if they need to hire more people well then you know that's that's something that they'll have to deal with maybe they should be spending more on labor so it's it's a difficult equation to get right and i don't think that the Tsai administration has gotten it right yet keith used an interesting word he said spectrum in referring to the different kinds of uh regulations that that would apply uh, to different types of uh employees or industries companies etc where where the government clearly erred early on in this process was not re- recognizing that there's a spectrum of industries and working conditions. And the, the one-size-fits-all approach, uh, frankly, seems to have come from uh, an extraordinary lack of ignorance, uh, lack of knowledge, so great ignorance about different types of industries. Uh, Keith used the example of, of an academic, and, and uh, this, the academic is a great example because these are people who don't sit in a desk all day. They go into class. They have to go do research. Um, it's something that also lends itself to telecommuting. And there, there are other industries where the, the norm is just to, to work very hard. You might get paid very more. I used to work in the financial industry. 12-hour days were pretty normal. You could tell, t- telling an international bank that you'd have to pay your white-collar senior financial industry executives in Taipei overtime because they stay past a certain time. I mean, that's bordering on insanity, and it just makes Taiwan a laughing stock. Uh, so clearly, uh, a government, uh, unfortunately, filled with too many professors who lack knowledge of how industry actually works and don't have business experience, uh, wound up giving us the, this awful regime that, that's that been a complete failure. And I know these words are very harsh, but uh, something that might have been good for, for safeguarding um, people who work on assembly lines or uh, agriculture or some of the other more outdoors or blue-collar industries that you mentioned, okay, we could all appreciate that protection was needed for some of those workers. Uh, but but it, it's been so destructive to the normal operations of companies that uh, there, there, there's almost nothing good to be said about it at this point. Yeah. Well, the the thing that's been striking to me is even a lot of those workers that I would have felt needed the protection, they're also coming out against this. You know, for example, nurses. Uh, nurses are notoriously overworked in Taiwan. Uh, day working for you know, twelve hour, thirteen hour shifts, days on end. Uh, so that was uh, clearly has been a problem in Taiwan for years and years and years. And so I would have expected, you know, if anybody would appreciate this sort of regulation, it would be the nurses or the other sectors that have been facing this sort of stuff. But even in those cases, it, it, it does seem like the, the rigidity of this uh, is not really serving their interests either. Um, although we do we do see some examples, uh, for example, the the union that represents some uh, drivers are saying, no, we do like these regulations. This actually has helped limit our hours in in, in some cases. So they would be uh, against 
uh, further flexibility, further singling out of individual industries and saying a new set of rules should apply to this industry, they would actually be against that. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a wash. And I think just, just in general, having the government at the center uh, and determining this equation is probably a mistake. Probably what is needed is some other kind of mechanism to empower workers to work this out with their employers. Well, keeping in mind that uh, about four or five months ago, when, when so much criticism had already been percolating in society between employees and, and their employers and both directing it at the government, at some point the president herself kind of threw up her hands and said, you guys all work it out yourselves. Uh, so uh, maybe she is trying to remove government, but of course, as, as Gavin uh, indicated the government is very much involved in trying to find solutions for a problem it created. And, and just one final point, um, speaking as a lawyer, uh, to pass a law and then say, well, actually, uh, the, maybe they start by saying, this is what the law means. And now, without passing a new law, they'll say, like, well, well, we'll just issue some more regulations to say, uh, uh, that's not what the law says. I mean, that's very messy. That's just very bad process. So, uh, to the extent that the laws need to be fixed because the laws were, dra- were poorly drafted, then the, really the appropriate way to do it is to go back to the to the legislature and revise the law. I think it's a it's a very risky situation from a pro- legal process perspective, where you're going to have a law, but then the, the Ministry of Labor will be issuing all sorts of interpretations. Um, so that's also something to watch as this process plays out. And I'm sure we will, because of course, when that happens, we'll have to talk about the work week laws again. I think if I had a one NT coin for every time we've covered the work week laws in this show, I could probably buy everyone a nice meal. Well, if you keep talking about it, you'll, you'll have to get more overtime. That's true, but will they allow? Anyway, let's quickly move on. And this is about the Taiwan Railways Administration this week, that it said it's considering whether to introduce security checks for passengers on trains. Now, this comes after a lithium-ion battery in a mobile charging device caught fire in a passenger train on the East Coastline this week. No one was injured, but passengers needed to be evacuated from the train after smoke filled one of the carriages. Now, while this is a standalone incident, might have been simply ignored... It did occur virtually one year after 55-year-old Lin Ying Zheng detonated a homemade pipe bomb on a commuter train, injuring 25 people. Now, Lin was sentenced to 30 years in prison for attempted murder and the illegal use of explosives, just to add to that. So, Ross, do you think it's feasible for the Taiwan Railways Administration to actually introduce passenger security checks for its trains? No. Uh, And and this seems to be another uh, solution in search of a problem. Um, One battery explosion so far one come on last year there was another well that was not because of a battery and and we we really don't know whether uh some kind of security check would have found uh the pipe bomb that this one crazed individual brought onto the uh train uh and then obviously you can't have it on the intracity railways like the Taiwan railway administration without also having it on the high speed rail and the mtrs in uh, taipei kaohsiung and now taoyuan uh, right that would be completely illogical why what would be the justification for having it only on taiwan railways but not on the mtr which probably carries more passengers every day uh, in taipei or, or to a lesser extent in, in kaohsiung taoyuan as well as the high speed rail uh, so we're going that that would be completely illogical so we would have to do it on all the systems. You would have to train up the staff. Uh, those of us who've taken the Taiwan Railways, uh, which goes to some very interesting and picturesque and small towns uh, all throughout Taiwan, uh, know that these stations, um, once you get out of the urban areas, the stations are very open. Uh, so you'd have to increase the, the security barriers around the stations. And then, obviously, you would have to staff up 
the people who could ha- perform these duties, uh, that most of the security guards, with all due respect, that, that do exist at some of these stations, are not trained for this. So they would need training, or you'd have to hire people who do have the training. This is going to cost a, a substantial amount of money, uh, plus x-ray machines. Or are we just going to have frisking with handheld handheld um, wands to search for uh, metal, uh, which, of course, doesn't address the explosive concern? So obviously, this is something that has not been thought out and would be nearly impossible to execute. And frankly, it's just not justified by any risk factors. Well, if we think back to the Samsung battery explosions from about a year ago, those were also apparently lithium batteries as well. So there is there is something about this lithium battery technology that does uh, lend itself somewhat to explosions. And some people have said, you know, maybe batteries sh- should be developed that uh, don't use lithium. But the fact that this has only happened once... I, I, I think sort of shows that this is not really something worth shutting down the entire a, system for. More of a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, more of a knee-jerk reaction. Well, well, to take Heath's point to its logical conclusion, maybe the the, the office building where ICRT is should be checking for lithium right. batteries yeah, I mean, because if one would explode on the on the 12th floor exactly. and we're up on the 19th exactly. floor, we're going to be stuck in a fire. That's sort of what I'm getting so at. So again, yeah. well, that's why I said it's it's a solution in search of a problem. It's completely illogical, and hopefully they won't do it. And I don't think that, I mean, I don't know how, nobody has come out with a serious proposal to do this. I think the government was kind of on the back foot saying, you know, we're thinking about something, you know, but people are going to forget in a couple of days and we won't be talking about it then. So I, I doubt this is something we'll be talking about a week from now. No, we'll go back to the work week laws and trade and industry and things like that. Anyway, we now have to take a short break, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we'll begin this part of the show where the week began here. That being when thousands of temple representatives and worshippers rallied in Taipei on Sunday to voice their opposition to what one participant described as the fuzzy government policy of attempting to stem air pollution by either reducing or banning the burning of incense and paper money. Now, as neither Ross, Keith or myself are qualified to talk about Taoist practices, I sought out Daphne Sheng, a and researcher of Taoism and Taiwanese folk religions at the Furen University in New Taipei. So could you give us some of the background to incense, ghost money burning and its significance at religious events? Okay, sure. But first of all, I have to correct the phrase, ghost money. Actually, Taiwanese call it paper money. Different paper money is burned to different objects. Gold paper money is for the gods, deities, and celestial beings, while silver paper money, which is what you call ghost money, is for the ancestries and dead people. Okay? Okay. In ancient China, the emperors made the special officers offer the sacrifice to the heaven gods by putting the sacrifice and jade on a mass of wood and burning them to make the smoke. And by the rising smoke, the emperors sent their respects and appreciation to the heaven gods. With the changes of time and spaces, the ceremony has been no longer held by the emperors exclusively. People have simplified the mass of wood and have gradually transformed it into incense sticks. The worship has become easier and popular among the ordinary people since then. 
No, you know we Han people always say that the smoke made from one stick of incense can help people reach the gods in heaven. That's why when we worship, we need to light the incense and let the rising smoke take our rep-、uh, respects and prayers to the gods. In order to show our appreciation to them, and to let them know what we are in need, incense is actually the major element in ceremonies. By contrast, the sacrifice becomes not so important as the incense. Taoists and folk religion believers know that at religious events, the incense has two important functions. One is to purify the external environment where they hold,、uh, we hold the ceremonies, and the other is to transmit the internal prayers to the gods or ancestors. Besides this, the ash made from the incense burning is a symbol of gods or ancestors. We call it incense fire, 香火 People on journey usually carry a little pouch of incense ash to represent the gods or the ancestors that they have worshipped, so to protect them from the injuries from any kinds of causes. And that was what our ancestors did when they came from their native land to Taiwan. And this is why people value the incense so much. Ryan. How how have temples and religious groups reacted to claims that the government could ban incense and paper money burning? Okay, temples and religious groups feel that the government do- doesn't respect their religious autonomy. The governors make the gods bear the responsibility of air con-、uh, pollution and dishonor the gods. According to the data of EPA. The carbon emissions come from the incense and paper money burning is far less than one percent of which from the vehicles and the industrial fa-、uh, factories. The governor don't undertake the most serious cases first, but it logically pick on the tender temples and religious groups. They are committing an error of putting the cart before the horse. Temples and religious groups think the incense and paper money burning can only be reduced, not to be eliminated or substituted. They say, if people do not treasure the incense fire and protect the religious culture traditions, now they will get regrets after. Ryman, how do you see religious groups and temples taking action to reduce the amount of money or paper money and incense being burnt? What action are temples taking? Okay, many of my students are the persons who take charge of a temple or a religious group. They have already gradually cut down on the amount of incense and paper money burning for years. They think highly of the health of themselves and the believers, or the followers, more than anyone in our government does. They have used the incense of nice quality to please the gods, and have reduced 
three incense sticks to one for each censer. They burned the paper money in compliance with the eco-friendly standard, so to decrease the smoke and the ash to the minimum. I have also seen these、uh, performances when I've made researchers in the fields these ten years. After all, people go to temples to ask the gods to resolve their life problems and to make them live peacefully and safely, not to ask for trouble. Right. I mean, what 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 could the government do to cut down on the the money and the incense and temple burning generally without offending the temples? Okay.、Uh, as I mentioned before, most temples also has already have already regulated their policy of burning incense and paper money. They have reduced the burning aut- autonomously for years. And there is really no need for government to intrude. The traditional rituals seem so severely. Some voices highlight and overstate the polluting situation of incense and paper money burning, or even try to exterminate the traditional parts. But I think it's not fair for both of the temples and religious. Rituals to do so. Why can't they just think wisely? The burning of incense and paper money is not the only or the biggest causes of air pollution. So, I think the very only step that our government should take is to require and control the quality of the incense and paper money, and stop. Interfering with the religious ceremonies by any excuse. Right, of course, some temples have taken to the internet to allow their worshippers to like burn money and burn incense at the press of a button.、Mm-hmm. I mean, is is this becoming popular, or do you think people aren't really using this?、Mm, okay, according to my ob-、uh, observations, doing worship on the internet is interesting to young people mainly. You know, they do it, but they do it just for fun. It is irrelevant to the belief. Worshiping gods is not playing games. How can we do that only by pu- pushing the buttons? Okay, I don't think there will be anyone who would always like to interact with his family or friends on the internet. Not to mention the worship to gods. If virtual worship means could take the place of one's belief, nothing could not be substituted in the world. You know, for for the believers, for the followers uh, uh, of Taoism or in the tradition traditional religion, by standing or kneeling down in front of the statues of gods and holding a stick of incense in hands. People can feel that they are connected with the gods. The gods are listening to them. All their sorrow and worry will be relieved by the gods. People build up their hopes and confidence again after worshiping. This is totally a simple and common, but holy religious ritual in Taiwan for ages.
So I'm firmly convinced that no one in the believer would stand for any movement from any any parts of the government to make 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 them to elite to destroy the their belief their their religion how come because you know in Taoist and traditional belief in Taiwan to eliminate the incense and paper money burning is to wipe out the link to gods that is equal to subvert and destroy people's belief and their life values so nobody will stand for it and that was me talking to Furen University lecturer and researcher Daphne Sheng. Now, very quickly here, I mean, the whole issue of the ban on incense and paper money burning, all of course, Ross, stemmed from an online rumour that just went, maybe some might argue, a bit too far. Well, the, the, it behooves the government to get ahead of policymaking. Uh, it's the, the word of the day in Washington is leaks and fighting leaks. Uh, so hopefully we don't have that problem with the government here in Taiwan. Uh, and uh, the government's now been trying to respond for a number of days. It's gotten some bad publicity. Uh, it's gotten a lot of temple representatives and religious uh, followers upset, taking to the street to protest. And it's given a good issue for the KMT to say, uh, oh, well, of course we support the, the right of religious believers to burn incense. It's just an easy political win for, for the KMT. Uh, and Taiwan is a, a society where um, people do uh, place a great value on, on uh, following traditional practices uh, with regard to religion, ancestor worship, uh, as um, you know, the, your previous guest indicated. And uh, you know, to, to take them on without having a really good policy uh, seems to have been quite sloppy by the government. Yeah, I mean, this basically seems to come down to uh, some folks were reporting that the DPP was calling for an outright ban. They were just asking for reductions, and I don't, I don't necessarily know that they had a specific policy in mind. They were just looking for some to to get to reductions of burning in in, in one way or another. Uh, and this whole thing basically brings up the issue of fake news, which is a topic that we've been talking about on this show all, all year. Earlier this year, there was uh, talk of an Espionage Act, uh, the contents of which I don't think has been made public, but uh, it was believed that some portion of that would deal with fake news and, and ways to address fake news. Uh, a lot of other reports that some of this news is being coordinated out of China, so it's seen as a, as a national security threat. Uh, and so it's it's really something that you want to look at closely, because one man's fake news is another man's free speech, and if the government is really getting involved in this sort of public discourse, that obviously raises some free speech concerns. But uh, at least based on what we're seeing so far, the proposals coming from the government, it's, it's basically just a matter of, you know, the relevant agencies should do a better job of tracking news that is out there, and when they see something that they believe is misrepresenting their position or misrepresenting the facts, you know, they'll respond a little bit more aggressively and a little bit more assertively. So as long as it's just kept to the level of the government being more proactive in its messaging, I, I don't really see any problem there. 
Right, and before we go, signing off from this week's show, scores of people here in Taiwan have been going bananas over a visit to the bank. That after Mega International announced that it was giving away bunches of the fruit to its staff and customers. Now, Mega Bank purchased 100 tons of bananas due to an oversupply of the fruit and a move that the bank said was aimed at helping local farmers. Now, the giveaway attracted huge interest and according to reports, some customers even made numerous trips to the banks on what became known as banana runs. So, Ross, have you popped off to Mega Bank to get your bananas this week? I am not a client of Mega Bank, so I was not entitled to partake in their banana giveaway. O- you could have opened an account to get your four free bananas. Well, that raises uh, some of the key points here, Gavin, <laughs> because one, uh, Mega Bank and, and there was another institution that was doing something similar, which are both controlled by the government. So the government uh, kindly asks a government-controlled bank, which is also publicly listed, so their share, not only is this bank um, controlled by the tax Taxpayer, but it's also um, widely held by by stockholders in the, in the public, people like us, who are you know, just individuals who own stocks. Um, they, they're wasting the shareholders and the taxpayers' money supporting the banana farmers instead of having a, a good agricultural policy that would uh, help the farmers uh, either market their products more effectively, whether domestically or overseas, or plant crops in, in, in a more uh, intelligent way so we don't get gluts as has occurred this year. Uh, so this is just a terrible policy. And and the last thing I was going to do, Gavin, uh, was spend two hours opening a bank account. Because if you've ever opened a bank account in Taipei, uh, and I've done so recently, both for uh, individual needs as well as for business needs, uh, it takes about two hours. So maybe instead of spending time on bananas, they could spend time on how to improve their processes. Uh, but the, the, this is just a, a, another bad policy. And, and it actually shows um, that the government, which I think a lot of people don't realize, that the government here in Taiwan, it's not a DPP or a KMT issue, but the government still controls substantial portions of the economy. Very large companies uh, in different sectors, whether it's financial or, or other industries, such as is uh, uh, where you put gas into your vehicle, uh, the, there are, there's a substantial government ownership of the economy, which is somebody who supports um, free markets thinks is a terrible thing. But let's ask the person who went to Berkeley. So, Ross, it sounds like uh, one way to sum up what you're saying is you, you thought that this policy was very unappealing. Would that be, would that be accurate? Obviously, it's a slippery slope. All right, there. That's that's all I wanted to get in there. Um, yeah, I don't know. As, as a government policy, it, it it does seem a little bit silly, uh, especially you know one report I saw they they actually had to send people out in the early morning to go buy more bananas because they were running out of stock and they were worried that the customers were going to complain. So it 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 does. It's it's all a little bit slapstick in this instance, um, and uh, yeah, even even good old Berkeley me uh, is is having a little bit of a hard time finding something redeeming about uh, this, other than the comedic factor, which is pretty good. I, it it does illustrate why you know when a, a company gives some kind of free giveaway, at the bottom of the coupon it has about two paragraphs of you know extra provisions saying like you know not good after this date, not good in this certain place so and it's not our responsibility if you get right. sick from the banana <laughs> right, right right yeah yeah so they probably should have put this is an argument for more fine print i guess in this case uh but but let's make no mistake about it right this is not a, a company 
uh, on its own deciding they want to be a good corporate citizen and, and, and help the farmers, right? That this is a, a government-controlled institution where the government said, why don't, why don't you do this and, and to, to help the farmers? And now they're wasting taxpayer and shareholder money, which I think is, is, is a very bad policy. I will say I have used Megabank to remit money back to the states. And in that regard, they've always served me well. Well, this is the bank that just got fined uh, last year $180 million by regulators in the U.S. for anti-money laundering failures. So again, you can see like they're spending their time on, on bananas instead of um, more important things. Who knows where that money for the bananas came from? It raises even more questions. Well, I'm going to put a damper because I thought it was quite a good idea. I quite <laughs> like the idea of a bank giving away bananas instead of the other rubbish they give away to people when they open bank accounts, like a blender. I'd sooner have a bunch of bananas than a blender. There well, you go. Well, that's, that's, you that's, you that's, need a blender to blend the bananas there, right? Yeah, those two might go together, actually. Oh, God, could start win. a small business. I can't win. Can I? <laughs> anyway, I'll think next week before I put a stupid story in, because we'll twist it around and make it a serious story. Anyway, that's... <laughs> you got to be careful with Roz. Anyway, anyway, shut up, Menconi, because that's where we're leaving Taiwan this week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio by Keith Menconi. Yeah, uh, good to be here. And Ross Feingold. Good night. Who didn't get any bananas, and I think he's bitter about that. <laughs> That's where most of this is coming from. <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous episodes. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.